You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Last week uh, was our member drive. Thank you to everybody who went to strongtowns.org and signed up to become a member. Uh, we deeply appreciate that. Uh, one of our big time supporters and uh, a good friend of mine is also an author published with Wiley Publishing. Him and I both have books that came out, I think the exact same day or within a day or two of each other. I've been wanting to chat with him, but I've been out on the road. We finally got it set up now. And so on the line with me from the strongest town in America, Pensacola, Florida, Quint Studer with the Studer Community Institute. Quint, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Well, thank you, Chuck. And congratulations on not only your book, but um, the, the change you're making. I mean, you know, all of a sudden it seems like it's just happening, all these towns recognizing it. But, you know, what people miss is usually... By the time people start noticing it, somebody such as yourself has been trying to push this boulder up a hill for, for years and years and years. So thank you for the tremendous impact that you're making on America. Well, thank you. That's that's very, very kind. And you, you've you been there a while with us and seen the boulder pushing, and you've done your fair share of boulder pushing too. So we'll keep doing it. You have put together many books. This latest one is called The Busy Leaders Handbook, How to Lead People in Places that Thrive. I want to, first of all, ask, how does a busy guy write a book like this? <laughs> but second, let's talk about the fact that you and I are both busy people. What, what can someone who's too busy to read a book actually learn from this book that you put together, which is a, a very nice and easily digestible read? Well, I think that's exactly why we did it the way we did it. It's it's really 41 separate, small, short chapters. And I find, and I've written, this is my 10th book. And, you know, some books you can read from the beginning to end, and that makes a lot of sense, certainly biographies and history, and even in building culture and companies, which I've done sometimes. But in this one, we really wanted to make it for the manager who's so busy that they they might read the whole book, but might not. So all of a sudden they get their employee engagement results back, or all of a sudden they hear they're not a good communicator, or they want to be better. They can go to chapter six on how to be a, a good communicator. Um, we find clarity is a big issue. People, you thought you described something you didn't. We can go to chapter 12. Um, maybe you're finding some inconsistency. You can go to chapter 32 on standards of behavior. So I really took over the years what I thought if every manager did these certain behaviors, you would create the elusive thing that every company looks for, every community looks for, consistency. So it's not that a person doesn't have really, really good days or good weeks. It's how do you get consistency? And for many managers, their organizations aren't going to, you know, take them off for training. If you run a small business, you're not going to go away and spend all that money. So I tried to create really a desktop book that people could go to when they want to really be a better leader. We have an astounding team here at Strong Towns. Even so, there are times when I feel like an inadequate leader. The last month with me being on the road a lot has kind of felt that way. And I found myself flipping through the book going, oh gosh, 
I've gotten away from this or, oh, I, you know, I don't do this. This is something I should do. Can we go through a couple of these things? Sure. I think the other thing, Chuck, too, and it fits to a couple areas. No, number one is sometimes it's sort of interesting. It's not that we don't do it, but we haven't done it maybe enough to have the impact. The, the other thing is, and it ties into strong towns, as you know, I, I sort of look at, at strong towns have to move four circles, the education circle, the civic engagement circle, the um, skill building or economic development circle, and the downtown circle. And what we find is with these downtowns and it hits economic development, if you don't uh, train these small businesses, it's not the idea they're missing or the passion they're missing or even the ability to start they're missing. It's how do I successfully run a business so it doesn't be one of these 80% that don't make it five years. So I wrote the book really tied into strong towns that is you want to have a strong town, you can have strong small businesses. So if you have strong small businesses, it's how do their skills develop. And in most small communities, mid-market communities, there really aren't avenues for these businesses to do that. So my book was really meant to sort of go along with your a bottom-up revolution, rebuilding American prosperity, is giving these small business owners a simple to read, not easy to do, but is doable, tools and techniques to run their business better, which I think ties right into and I think it's a great companion piece for your book. I absolutely agree with that. Page 19, one of these chapters, quiet the ego and lead with humility. This is something I've actually watched you do over the years. It's something that I try to do and struggle with. Can you talk about why it's so important to quiet the ego and lead with humility? Well, I think the number one thing that a, a person wants to follow is somebody who's authentic and approachable. I sort of got this year, years ago when I was working in a hospital, we paid a, a great deal of money to bring in a best-selling author, very well-known. And he got up and, and basically he presented himself, maybe this is how I interpreted it, it's so good and so perfect. Everybody thought he was really smart, but I don't think people thought they could go up and say, well, how did you do this? Where are you at? So I think you just want to be authentic. And I think you have to role model, you know, what you want others to do, which is you want others to look at the results and say, hmm, here's where I can get better. The other thing that I think is you have to make sure you make help the other people recognize. So I, I've had this experience, Chuck, is I'd rather deflate my own ego because it seems like if I don't deflate my own ego, it gets deflated for me. So I'll tell you a book story real quick, Chuck. I think you'll like it. So my second book or third book, Results at Last, did hit number eight on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Microsoft named it the book of the year. So Microsoft asked me if I would go to certain cities and they would invite their clients to hear me talk about my book. Okay. Now, I was used to healthcare, but this was pretty exciting to go to non-healthcare. So I went to Boston and... I even brought a friend with me, which was really ended up being a big mistake, and because he still talks to me about it. And um, you know, in healthcare, I draw hundreds of people when I, I I speak. And I went down, and they had sixty. You know, they had I think ten to six tables set up for ten sixty people are registered. But when I went down there, they only had three tables of eight set up for twenty four. Well, I looked at the the sixty people registered and the twenty four that tables. And I said, you know, I, I think we have 60 people registered. You only have 24 seats. And they said, well, 
told we have an all-out no-shows. Well, this is where I should have kept my mouth shut. So I said, well, I find that most people when come to hear my talk. Okay. I woke up the next morning, came down and spoke to eight people. Anyway, um, that was my spinal tap of book tours, by the way. And again, if you don't deflate your own ego, it gets deflated for you. So I think humility is the great gift we get when we don't look ourselves, we're allowed to look at ourselves objectively. So it's not false pride. Like you're a talented, skilled person. You're a guru in building strong towns. So if somebody came up to you and said, well, Chuck, you're really smart on building strong towns. And you say, oh, no, I'm not. Oh, no, I'm not. That, that's false pride. That's not allowing me to learn from you because you've said, no, you're not. Now, what, what I find, though, is, is so there's false pride. But humility is also being able to see ourselves in what I call an objective way. You know, what can I do well and what can I get, get better in? I spoke in Wisconsin not too long ago, and a lady that's heard me for years said, you know, Quint, you used to start, and you used to sort of start off like this, and I thought it was really effective. You were really good today, but I sort of missed your start. And I said, well, thank you very much. That's really helpful to me. I think I did rush at the start, and I'll do you a lot better next time. And I I was very pleased that you told me that. Now, I think one time in my career, Chuck, I would have been hurt or devastated. So I think it's that emotional maturity we get. Sure. I have a board of directors that helps me run the nonprofit. And at, at times, you know, like when we first did the first leg of the book tour, I had one of our, our newer staff members, a guy named John Pattison traveled with me and John heard the talk I was giving like three times. And he was very complimentary. He's like, Oh, this is really good. And it's really good. I'm like, well, g- give me some feedback. Like, how do I make it better? And he's like, Oh, I don't know. It's just really good. John Reuter, one of my board members then came to one of the talks and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is why I think surrounding yourself with these kind of people, we got in the car and he said, okay, Chuck, it's very good. Uh, here's four pages of how we fix it and make it better. And that was actually the most helpful thing that anyone did for me in the last uh, six weeks was, was dig into it in a constructive way and make it better. I'm doing a talk in two days, a big talk on, on leading from the inside. And one of the stories I'm talking about is if you care about someone you tell them they have spinach in their teeth. And the only way that we can get better is to surround ourselves with people that care about either what we're doing, like, you know, your board is very committed to making a difference. They care about really your mission of Strong Town so strongly that they're willing to give you feedback, even though they might be uncomfortable doing it because they care about you and they love what you're trying to do. So I think you hit it perfectly. Yeah. You talk in that chapter about being coachable. You've been incredibly successful in your life. You started this business from scratch that that was a multi-million dollar corporation. Uh, like you said, in the healthcare industry, hundreds of people show up when you'd speak. I know you're a coachable guy because you've asked me for advice and, and I've kind of been blown away by that. But we've we've talked a number of times. How important is it for Bill Gates to be coachable, for the, you know, the president of the United States to be coachable for, for Quint Studer to be coachable for anyone who wants to be a leader, to be able to be coached. Well, I think in chapter one of my book, I thought I hit it really good. And I learned this too, first by myself becoming coachable, but then I think asking people. So Jerry Gruner is a managing partner of a company called JMI and they're a private investment equity firm. And they, you know, they invest millions of dollars in companies. 
and I was having breakfast with him one day. I was curious, and I said to him, Harry, when you look to invest in a company, what do you look for? And I thought he'd say things like, um, you know, can you raise the price? Is there some price range we can move up? Because that's a quick way to make a company more profitable. Number two, what's the runway? What's the market? And those are those are things they do look at. But he sort of surprised me when he said, number one is founders' ability to be self-aware, and number two, coachability. Because if we're going to invest in a company, we're going to invest because we think it can grow. And that founder needs to understand that means they're going to have to do some things differently. And it hit me. I'm very active in various um, um, recovery community. In fact, I'm on the board of directors of a place in Minnesota called Hazelton Betty Ford. You know, if you look at recovery, even from addiction, it's self-awareness and then be coachable. And I think that's everything. So I think that's the key. In fact, um, I thought my first chapter really hit it. If you're self-aware or willing to put the measurement in to be self-aware, then you're coachable. We wrote out our employee engagement survey results today to our various companies. One of our younger leaders, her results exactly weren't what she was hoped they'd be. But we had a wonderful conversation about her employees expect her to be there all the time. And the reason is when she first started the department, she was there all the time because they were all new. Well, now, if they've got more experience, she's backed off a bit. They saw that as she's not as engaged as she used to be. She sees it as, I trust you on your own. So, see, she got self-awareness today from her employee engagement survey. And now she'll be coachable to go in and be more clear with the employees on what she was expecting. So, I think if you're not self-aware and coachable, you're just not going to grow. And you, you find that in strong towns. When you go to a community, you know, Chuck, I do a quick assessment of a community. Um, to get them to see, you know, what do you think your downtown looks like? What do you think your small business culture is? Because if they think it's better than it is, it's going to be really hard to get them to change their behavior. And if we're going to create better communities, behavior change is a big part of it. It's it's huge. Yeah, I agree. In chapter five, you talk a little bit about letting your values be your guide. And you start with a quote from Roy Disney. And I, I found that interesting because Disney is one of those corporations that essentially manages by values. I mean, they, they actually have value statements that they've given to their staff to help them make day-to-day decisions. I want you to talk a little bit about values, having values be something that not only you start with, but that you, you share with others. Why is that so critical? Well, for success. And I, I think although I always worked in organizations that had values and tried to live them, James Collins' book, Built to Last, and I actually like it better than his other books, and they're all nice, but Built to Last was his, I like research, and he researched all these companies that had lasted and some that did not, and what he came up with is what was the defining thing that um, made a company last, and sometimes, you know, they all had rough times, they all had rough goes, and he said it's when companies choose values over revenue they tend to have better success long-term. And his example, of course, years ago was Tylenol. You know, that was one shelf in one store. And they shut down the whole kit and caboodle and gave up millions of dollars, but they walked out of it with, with more respect. Recently, McDonald's is a great example. You know, they, they had a rule about having relationships with coworkers. And, you know, they just let their CEO go because he had a relationship with a coworker. Now, 
other companies might have just came up with an excuse, look the other way. But man, does that make a statement to the rest of your workforce? And he came out and said, yeah, he made a mistake. He deserved deserved to go. So I, I think in healthcare, I bring this to healthcare too. If I can get the nurse to realize when you do these things, you have a better clinical outcome, the nurse cannot not do those things. I look at streets. You know, it's not a speed limit we're trying to do. It's saving lives we're trying to do. You know, Chuck, when I show results that show if you go 25 and you get hit by a car, 10 out of 10 people will probably live. At 35, um, you know, 4 out of 10 will die. And at 45, 8 out of 10 will die. So when we reduce the speed limit, we're not trying to slow down cars. We're trying to save lives. So you push some things in a value perspective. You know, Chuck, you changed Pensacola when you showed us infill lots. And you said, you know, if we fill in these infill lots, we don't have to spend money on roads or poles and pipes, but we can create better tax value. Now, but the goal isn't to create better taxes, more taxes. The goal is to really make your police and fire and education better. That's what taxes go to. So when you tie it to values, people will sometimes do something they normally are uncomfortable doing because they cannot not do it because it connects to their value system. There's a couple chapters here that I felt were really, really specifically applicable to local governments, particularly ones that I've I've worked with. And I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the, the first one is chapter 16 about positive workplace culture. A lot of local governments that I work with have great culture and they're, they're great places and there's great people. You'll go to another one and it will just be like a diseased place. And it's never really been clear to me beyond maybe the makeup of some of the people there, uh, why you would have, even in cities that are right next door to each other, why you would have such a huge disparity, but you, but you do. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of creating a positive workplace culture. Cause it's more than just smiling and being polite, which people even in negative places seem to be able to do, but it's a, it's something deeper. What, what is it about a positive culture that people should have to take away? If you get a positive culture, which means moving from satisfied employees to an engaged employee culture, that means that people are committed to the organization's goals. So I'm a satisfied person. Yeah, I come in, I do work, and I do okay. But I'm not as committed to the goals as uh, an engaged person. Now, I I find with government, and this is one of the things that I find is interesting, Chuck, most businesses I've worked with over the years are not government. So they have what they call a revenue stream. And they see direct correlation between their employee engagement and their customer satisfaction or their revenue stream. So, for example, as you know, you threw your – 95-mile-per-hour fastball when you threw the first pitch at the Blue Wahoo (laughs) game this summer. And we focus really, really hard on employee engagement because we want a great fan experience. Government has normally a dedicated revenue stream. So when you have a dedicated revenue stream, you might not feel the pressure to create the employee culture that somebody who knows if I don't have it, I'm not going to have that revenue stream. That's why I believe in cities, city government, where you have more value-led people are going to do some things, even though they have a guaranteed revenue stream. I, I had a city tell me one time, they said, Quinn, 
all these things you're pushing, you, you don't understand. We're a not-for-profit. I said, I've worked with not-for-profits my, most of my career. They're healthcare not-for-profits, but they still wanted to perform well, be effective and efficient. So don't say that being not-for-profit means you can't run real well. So I think one of the things I find in government is twofold. Number one, maybe three. Um, a lot of them have a dashboard that's too complex. It's too many things, you know. So how do you really measure exactly what you want to accomplish? Some don't measure what I would want them to measure, such as employee engagement. For example, in Pensacola this year, for the first time, our mayor, new mayor, Mayor Robinson, measured employee engagement from an outside company. You know, there's a lot of anxiety at first when he did it. But once they got it, people sort of knew what departments are running well, which ones can run better. The second thing I think government many times does not do, that private employers, the better ones do do, and is training and develop managers. You know, so if you go to your local government and ask them how many hours a year are you releasing your managers for training and development, it's just not much. So, so I think government... Um, those govern those cities you go to that are well run. I bet you they do a better job with measurement and a better job with training. Right. Talk a little bit about involving your staff, your team, in kind of this evaluation of what's going well, and uh, helping them be kind of the missionaries inside. I I think sometimes we think of leadership as the person who inspires, who stands there up up front and and pounds the table and says, here's what we're doing. How is that different than a culture that does that? I think a culture, you develop people. You see your main job as a developer. So your goal is to make other people be successful. So for example, one of the things in the book, and I write in my columns many times is, you know, if you're a new leader, first thing you do is you send an anonymous survey out to your employees and say, what are the things we do well? What's one to three things that you think we do really well? What's one to three things that have opportunities to improve? What questions do you have for me? And if you were me in the next 60 to 90 days or six months, what should I be focused in on? Employees are blown away because nobody's ever asked them this stuff. And the leader becomes a big win right off the bat because all of a sudden somebody wants, wants my input. I think one of the, the hardest things for a leader to do, because remember, you got promoted because you had solutions. So what happens is an employee you have solutions, so you get promoted into a management role. Ironically, once you're in the management role, your goal is to treat other, help other employees come up with solutions. So one of the things I teach managers all the time is to say, what do you think we should do? Where are we at? And so, for example, next week, we're bringing all our managers off-site for an employee engagement survey. And for our baseball team, Chuck, one of the things that came in is people thought the hours were too long during the baseball season. They had to be at the game too early. So we're breaking them into a group and say, okay, our game started at 6.30. When do you have to be there so we get off to a good start? You tell us. So I, I think you have to be real careful as a leader not to be a park ranger. And a park ranger is someone who always leads people out, but they, your job is to teach them how to lead themselves out. So I, I think that's one of the great challenges because you got promoted because you come up with solutions. But all of a sudden, if you keep coming up with all the solutions, you don't train anybody else to come up with solutions. 
then you get angry at them because they're not coming up with solutions when you're the reason they aren't coming up with solutions. Early on at Strong Towns, my board members were a little uptight about the fact that we shared so much information. Um, we, we would publish our financials. We would publish our growth in readership. We would, uh, we put all these metrics kind of front and center and we still do that. We still share a lot of it. And one of the feedback that I got from my board was, well, other people don't do that. Why? That's just seems weird. Why would we do that? It, it seems like it's proprietary or we should have that internally. And I found that when we published our metrics and said, this is what's important to us. This is what we're shooting for. It kind of let other people know these are the things that we're valuing. Our mission or our model is to uh, change the conversation by reaching more people. Are we actually reaching more people? It was something we started to obsess on and focus on. I guess the question is along the lines of metrics. I know you do a lot with the Studer Foundation on metrics and letting people know what they are. How important is to have metrics and, and not only just have them be numbers, but have them be tied to your values and your culture? Well, two things. I think on the second part, you have to make sure you connect the dots. So, so you have to connect the dots of such as, you know, and again, you know, you're better than me, but, you know, our goal at Strong Towns is to, you know, rebuild American prosperity. And part of that is getting members with us. And by membership, that means we have more people out there owning this message. So the goal is not to get members. That's the tactic. And I think you have to educate people on what's the goal and what's the tactic. So, for example, Chuck, I talk here. Our goal is to keep our talent home. Now, research showed that they want the young people want a vibrant downtown. So we started focusing on a vibrant downtown. If the research would have said young people like strip malls by the interstate with chain restaurants, I would have tried to build strip malls by the interstate with chain restaurants. Because the goal was to keep talent home. So I think you have to, when you give the metrics, you have to work awful hard connecting why that metric is important to our mission. Now, as far as transparency, I would say that transparency is trust. You know, when I get people who will say to me, I wish my employees acted more like owners. And I say, well, the reason they don't is because they're not treated like owners. Why would you expect me to act like an owner when I'm not treated like owners? You want all your members, to me, Chuck, a strong towns, knowing you as well as I do. It's not Chuck Marone's strong towns. It's your members' strong towns. And if you're an owner, you see the results. So I used to tell people, you know, if you want people to act like an owner, you have to share financials. You know, if you want people to act like owner, you need to let them be part of the decision-making process. Because if I own a home, I know the financials. If I'm a home, own a home, I'm part of decision-making. I think it's always a little scary at first. I remember working with an organization, and the CEO said, well, Quint, you want me to share the financials? I said, yes. He said, well, we made $10 million last year. I said, well, okay, tell them what you're going to do with the $10 million that you're going to make. So he got up and told employees they made $10 million dollars and what this was going for. And he was stunned that people started clapping. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so then, then he got so motivated. The next big group of 900 employees came in. He said, we made 10 million this year, but if we can make 20 million next year, let me tell you where that 20 million is going. And people started clapping even more. Sure. And, 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 and so I don't, I think the transparency, the word really word is how do you build trust? 
And how do you build ownership? And you do that by sharing key information. You've got a section in here about hiring people. And it's one of those things where if I hear one bit of feedback from people who run small business, they always will say it's really hard to find people. It's really hard to find good people. And then even among you know, finding people and the good people, it's really hard to find the right person. You had some interesting ideas about building a, a basically like a bench of people and, and a lot of things that I think would fall under the umbrella of networking, but you took it to a different level. What, how do you get good people and how do you build uh, an organization full of the right people for, for, that, for that mission? Well, I think it starts off with early on, I get to speak over the years. I've heard people like James Collins. I was on a panel with him one time when Good to Great came out. Frederick Rygold, who's the expert in loyalty. I'm a big fan of his. And I just happened to ask them one day, Rygold wrote the book Loyalty Rules with the Harvard Press. And I said to them, gee, if I'm a manager or a leader or an owner, and I can only do one thing well, out of everything you, you guys mentioned, what's the one thing I can do well? And I asked them this separately. And both of them said, it's all about selection. You know, Southwest Airlines used to say, you know, or says today, I'll see Julie Weber, their VP of Human Resources. In fact, tomorrow, they they say um, selection is like a religious experience. And I think you have to take it seriously. Now, what I'm saying is the best way to get your next group of employees is treat your current group of employees great. It's not about recruitment. It's about retention. And then we do a couple things real quick. Number one, let your employees make decisions on who they should hire. Because I know you want somebody, you need somebody, but you're more likely to hire a bad fit than they are because they're the ones that have to work with them. So make sure you train your employees on behavioral-based interviewing, but make them part of the team and allow them to say, this person's not a good fit. Your employees will say, we would rather work harder and work short and hire people that don't fit here. The next thing is 23% of the people are going to leave within the first 90 days. Why? They come in and they don't feel like they fit in. They're a little scared. They realize what they don't know. It's really vital with that group to love them to death those first 90 days. And I always tell people, you know, make sure that on the 30th day, you tell them you're going to meet, even though you're talking to them, ask them what's going well. Ask them who's been helpful so you can compliment those that have been helpful. Ask them if they have the tools and equipment to do the job and ask them if there's anything you can do for them. Do the same thing on the 90th day, but then ask them and say to them, gee, you've been here 90 days. Um, You will came at other places. Is there anything that we're doing that you think we could do better based on what you saw at other places? Now they're willing to share a little bit. This last question is the key is say, is there anyone you know that you think would be a good fit here? And I I was speaking at the Independent Urology Association in Chicago Friday, and I said, if you do these things, you'll drop your first-year turnover 66%. And if you do these things and you don't drop your turnover 66%, write me and I'll send you $5,000. If you do do these things and you lower your turnover 66 or more, send me 5,000. So I just don't think we understand how vital selection is. At the Blue Wahoos, Chuck, every employee goes through three interviews. No matter what job you do, you get screened by human resources, then you get screened by your 
potential supervisor, then the final interview and decision-making is the employees. So that's some of the ways that we've built in strong. And in a tight labor market, we'll have hundreds of people apply for jobs. I, I found the same thing, Chuck. I'll go to a, to a conference, and I'll have a, a hospital years ago come up to me, and I'd say, what's your biggest challenge? Oh, my God, we can't find people, can't find nurses. Then another hospital would come up to me in the same town, and they'd tell me what their challenge were, but they'd never mention nurses. And I'd say, how's it going, nurses? And they say, oh, we have a waiting list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, and you've seen that with the Gallup study on vibrant thriving communities. So, you know, it's not location, it's leadership. It's not even salary and benefits either. I'm not saying that those aren't important. We've advertised jobs here and had a thousand people apply. Like, how, how, yeah. how does that happen? Yeah. Word of mouth. And, and also the other thing is, particularly with people today, they want to work for a place that they think has values and has the right mission. And, and that's so vital more and more. And that's why it's important, Chuck, for you particularly, because some of these people aren't on the road. So they don't see the impact that you're having. So you've almost got to go back and let them know because of your work. Here's what's happening. Years ago, I used to work with Oregon recovery centers. And a lot of these people that do the man, the phone calls, they don't see the surgery. They're not even in the same city where the person gets the new organ. But they have photos and letters all over their offices showing people that got organs because of them that can see that are alive. So I, I think for companies like yours or especially companies where people don't see it firsthand, connecting the dots back to the difference that you make in people. Or, for example, you know, I tell people um, with us that, you know, some of our money goes to early brain growth. Everything you do. So I think tying back to commitment or even tying back to hey, if you, if you help us be a better company, we're going to grow. And if we grow, you're going to have more opportunities for advancement. You're going to have more security. So I think the great leaders take time to connect the dots. The last part of the book I wanted to ask you about is the meetings. I hate meetings. I really do. I, I've always kind of found them, especially the ones that are just the going through the motions kind of meetings, just so tedious in our culture here. And I'm not going to say are, are known for, but one of the things that we've done is we hold our, our staff retreats at theme parks and spend our time in line doing our, our meeting. And then we'll go on a ride and then we'll start a new topic in a different line. I know not everybody can do that, but there's some, there's some tips for having good meetings that you put in a book. Do you like meetings and how do you make them so you don't hate them? Okay, well, I think a couple things. When I, of course, when I travel over the years, the biggest complaint people say was, well, you have so many meetings. And I said, do you have so many meetings or do you have so many crummy meetings? And so the question is, maybe we have so many crummy meetings, we have more meetings. So real quick tip we, we give people. We, we say, number one, for 50% of your workforce are introverts. That means when they go to a meeting, if they don't know what's going to be discussed, they're not ready to give a lot of feedback because they want to think about it. Now, your extroverts don't even need an agenda. But we can't run a whole company based on extroverts, so we're going to be lopsided. So rule number one is get the agenda out 24 hours ahead of time or don't have the meeting, because you're being unfair to people that want to think about the agenda. Number two, 
put put timelines, time frames for each agenda item. So you have an agenda item and say, you know, this is we're going to talk about this for ten minutes. We're going to talk about this for fifteen minutes. Put your most important things in the beginning, so if you run over, you can take time. Next, put down what you want out of that agenda item. Is it for discussion? Is it for just information? So, Chuck, an information one might be, hey, I just want to tell you my book's going to come out October this. It's just information for you. Um, discussion would be, hey, we need to discuss how we're going to promote, you know, the, the bottom-up revolution, strong towns to rebuild American prosperity. That's discussion. Action might be, hey, when we leave here in 15 minutes, we want to have three or four steps we're going to do to promote the books. So people now are listening, knowing what they're going to do. And then have, you know, don't have co-sponsors, have one sponsor of the topic and so on. I think the other key, Chuck, which makes people uncomfortable, is you don't end the meeting without people rating it on a one through ten. Because I've been to meetings where people shake their head and go like this and, you know, smooth the boss a bit. And then when they walk out, they say, what a crummy meeting it was. So you really force people to evaluate and you don't get angry. You don't say, oh, if you give me a seven, you got to write a three-page document. Why? You just say, okay, you know, when someone gives it a six or a seven, you meet with them and say, what does a nine or 10 look like? I think if you do that, the beauty is you'll have shorter meetings and you'll have less meetings because the meetings you're having are much more effective. Are you an extrovert or introvert? I'm more of the introvert. So I, I, you resonate with me when you say get the agenda out. I, I hate walking into meetings not knowing what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I'm an extrovert, so I, I prefer not to even have an agenda because then I can talk and talk and talk and listen <laughs> to myself. So I always joke, you know, when, when, if you have an introvert and extrovert and the boss throws out a problem, the extrovert wants to whip out a, a flip chart and start brainstorming. The introvert wants to go back to their office and read and study on it. So I always tell the story is you have to know that because if, if the introvert isn't engaged at the meeting, I could think they don't care. They're sitting there thinking, I don't want to comment until I can think about this. Now, and so the extrovert thinking the introvert isn't engaged. The introvert listens to us extroverts talk. Sometimes when we're talking, we're actually hearing it for the first time ourselves. If you, you know an extrovert when they compliment their own idea? Hey, that was a pretty good idea. Did somebody write that down? I thought that was pretty good. We'll even disagree with ourselves during the conversation. So the introvert is sitting there going, do these people know what they sound like? So I think, again, you have to create a culture for different personalities so we all blend together. But, yeah, we had a rule. If the agenda didn't go out 24 hours ahead of time, the meeting's automatically canceled because it's not fair to the people. Right. You've been working now with local governments for a while. I know that isn't the realm that you come from. It's a mantle you've kind of taken up now, and uh, I'm very grateful for it because I, I love your insights. How different or how challenging is local government to work with than entrepreneurs or even uh, something like the medical profession, which is you know, much larger and, and maybe even at times more centralized and top-down? What kind of challenges do you see in local government that are maybe just fundamentally different? I sort of call it local community because when we come in, like you come in, like you came to Pensacola, you weren't brought in by the government. You were brought in by our community group. So I, I look at local community, and I think the biggest challenge is 
I'll go real on this because I think it's so vital. Number one, most everyone leading the effort has never been trained in change management. You know, if you're going to change a business culture, you've read John Cotter's work on the eight steps to cultural transformation. You understand Maslow's theories for change. When I was on the curriculum committee the Harvard Business School, we said the number one skill a leader needs is change management. Yet when I go to organizations, they've never had any training on change management. I mean, they have to have a burning platform. You have to get people excited about the vision. And I think where most communities run a little short, Chuck, is they don't spend enough time building the guiding coalition. So the group is too small to push it over the, the, you know, the goal line. And then they don't understand turbulence. So the closer you get to changing an environment, the more turbulence you're going to get because people don't want it to change. You know, the normal person doesn't like change. I had a person working in a small community and I talked about filling in a vacant lots, Chuck, and they're against it. Right. Because they like their community like it is. They park their boat on this vacant lot. So if you don't understand that change gets pushback, Ralph Waldo Emerson says people like to be comfortable, but it's only from discomfort is there any real hope. So I think the biggest challenge they get is when the turbulence comes, instead of keeping the throttle down, they try to appease the unappeasable. They come up with a consensus. You know, I, I tell the story, there's, say, two cities 15 miles apart, and they want to build something brand new. So to please everyone, they put it right in the middle between both cities so nobody goes there. So I, I think it's the idea that they you have to spend time on change management. The second thing I find is they try to do too much too fast. That's why I love, we're, we're working real good, Chuck, on like your four things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. us last time you were here. They try to do too much. I mean, you know, we, we haven't done this in years. So I was just in Odessa, Texas. We ran four circles. The education circle is going to put the brain bag in at the local hospital for, for moms before they go home the first quarter. The, the economic development is going to do a course on how to develop a business plan the first quarter. The um, civic engagement one is going to bring in a speaker to talk about achievement gap in children, because I think that's important. And the fourth group, the downtown group, has picked the corner that they want to start moving their programming to. Now, that means four things will happen in the first quarter of 2020. I think these, these things get too complicated, too many three-ring binders, and they the challenge with this with communities or government is not planning. They plan up the gazoo. They need to go to planning anonymous. Their issue is just a lack of implementation. <laughs> I can see us sitting around the table going, Hey, my name's Chuck. I'm a planner. Um, I'm going to give this up for a while. Yeah. <laughs> the pushback I get and it, it gets when the political side intersects with the cultural side is the idea that, you know, the only thing we can do is big and bold and, and complicated. You're kind of affirming the opposite for me. Go ahead. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you really understand things, you can make it simple. So for example, Fort Walton Beach community said, Quint, our people go to your training. They really like you. Will you help us with the strategic plan? I said, I, I won't help you with the strategic plan, but I'll help you figure out what to do over the next year. And so we sat down with the city council over four half days and opened to public. We came up with three things that they need to do. You know what ended up, now this is really neat. The 
number one strategy for Fort Walton Beach is employee engagement. They're losing too many police officers, too many fire people. And if you don't have safety, you have nothing. Now, how many times have you seen strategic engagement in a city's planning document? And the next, the second goal was they have a water area that they want to develop. And because they're right on this water, not taking advantage of it. And so there's a couple, they're going to put in something called like the landing. Then the third one is just some basic downtown work. Um, and they left, that was good. See, they can do that. So I, I think um, I was just in a city that has a big planning company in, and they said, well, quick, what should we accomplish? And I said, well, and the city asked me to meet with them, the, the community leaders, mainly private business people. And I said, here's the two things. You have to help them figure out where their courthouse is going to go. Is it going to stay downtown or is it going to move? And they have two universities here. And those they're not keeping the entrepreneurs in town. So here they're sitting here with two universities. And you wouldn't even know they have universities because they're just not actively engaged in entrepreneurship and small business development. So if you want to be a great planner, have implementation steps. And I said, and don't call it the plan. Call it the implementation guide. Because if this city can do those two things, they're going to win. Um, just don't give a huge, giant plan. And I get that. You know, I get the street diet. Chuck, I'm a big believer in all those things. But like you said, it comes in incremental steps, not just one. Big, did, I said, you know, cities, if Walt Disney came to a city today, they'd expect them to build five theme parks day one. Right. That's not how you do it. You right. start out with one. Yeah, right. One one that didn't work all that well. And then figure, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Is this week EntreCon or is EntreCon next week? Well, EntreCon is this week. We're real excited. That's, again, part of this building small business. You know, we have 450 people signed up, which is a full house. We, first year, we started with 125. And that's why I tell people, don't be afraid to do the first one. You have to do the first one to do the second one because people like perfection. And uh, we have some great outside speakers coming in. And then we have a bunch of breakouts. And it really creates that that secret sauce where small business people know each other, they're hearing the right thing, they're hearing the same thing. And they go, I think, you know, 90 plus percent of the jobs are created by small businesses. And I just, um, I, I, I have a guest view coming on a paper today and I say, you know, the days of shovel ready land and incentives are, are fading. Yeah, hopefully. It's about talent. It's all about talent. Can you talk a little bit? I probably should have asked you this. Can you just explain what EntreCon is? EntreCon stands for Entrepreneurship and Continuous Improvement. And what we found is to help our small businesses, they need training. They can't afford to go to expensive, travelless country. They can't leave their job. So through the year, we do 19, our not-for-profit institute does 19 classes. Could be two hours. People can pick and choose, and, and they do quite well. Then once a year, we do a conference. And actually, we have people coming in from Wisconsin and Springfield, Ohio, but it's basically geared for local people. And it goes through, you know, things like, you know, employee engagement. It'll talk about cost of goods. It basically, we break down in order to run a small business, what do you need to do? We try to have some national speakers. This year, our three national speakers are, are Jake Poor, who runs a company called Integrated Loyalty. Um, Julie Weber, who's the head of human resources for Southwest Airlines, and Tiffany Sam, who was Forbes 30 Under 30, who runs a website for young women called Mogul. Then we 
integrate them with some, you know, pretty well-known local people like Keith Hoskins, who's president of Navy Federal, who was just on Fox News or some of the news yesterday talking about Veterans Day, um, with some other people. But then we have a lot of breakouts. And the breakouts can be, you know, we have an acupuncturist talking about how she grew her small business. Um, so it's, it's just like we just basically try to create a place where you can learn. It can be a safe environment. You feel really good. And then the second day we do awards. So we have people nominate for best startup, you know, best woman-owned business, minority-owned business, best family-owned business, best mid-sized company. Then we also give out a mentor award, you know somebody in the community that's a great mentor. So it's really grown from 125 to about 450. Everything we do, Chuck, every city can do. We, we don't do it to get people to Pensacola. We do it so we can create a toolkit. So if some other community wants to implement these things, they can do it in their own community. Because our goal, you know, we're partners, you know, Strong Towns and, and us, we're partners. We really want to do it just make quality of life better for people. Along those lines, I want to ask you to describe Civicon too. Yeah, just tell people what you did. Well, I got frustrated. That was step one. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we'd read books like you. We'd read stuff that people put out that makes a lot of sense. And then we didn't have the guiding coalition. Now I understand what we did wrong. So about three years ago, I said to a young guy who just was always talking about stuff, your stuff and other people's stuff, you know, why don't you find the top 10 to 15 people in the country to talk about sustainable communities from walking to biking to Tom Murphy of Pittsburgh public private partnerships. So communities don't get taken to the cleaners by private developers to, um, you know, community character to why do some neighborhoods get the good stuff and some neighborhoods get the bad stuff to Joe Manicosi talking about show me the math. And basically we brought people in and we didn't know what to expect. We got real lucky because our first speaker was a superstar named Chuck Marone. And, you know, Chuck, I didn't know if anyone would show up. I mean, I've done these healthcare education conferences, like understand your cholesterol and had three people in the room. So I was pretty nervous. I was almost going to make it. Our employees all show up for your talk, Chuck, make it mandatory so you wouldn't be hurt. But our local newspaper, which run by Lisa Savage, decided to really get behind this. So they do a great story on the speaker before they come. And then the speaker comes and speaks for about an hour with questions. I was afraid no one would show up. We had 275 people sign up for yours, Chuck, and another 5,000 watched it on live stream. We've never had a, a never had one be less than 200 people, and now we're up to last one had over 8,000 people watch it while it was being done on live stream. People can go to pnj.com, then dash Civicon, and the neat part is all these are available. So what we found is, and a guy from Baton Rouge saw what we were doing and said, well, you're raising the civic IQ. It's been unbelievable. So when our city council or county commissioners do some things that maybe don't fit what people talk about, people say, well, they said in Civicon, you shouldn't do that. You know, we, we've seen actual steps come where uh, what was going to be a commerce park now has um, people in saying, well, wait a minute, should, maybe it shouldn't be a commerce park. Maybe we should do a better plan for this along our waterfront. The government was going to put in a fish hatchery and our community said, well, that doesn't belong there. That can go anywhere. We need to open that up for the public. 
And it seems like Civicon's been part of the conversation now. So I think raising that civic IQ, Chuck, is part of what they talk about in um, Cotter's work on why cultural transformations fail. you got to create the guiding coalition. And, and that's why, Chuck, when we go to community and you go, you help create the guiding coalition. The challenge is somebody after that has to say, now what are we going to do? What are we going to do with these learning? Because you're going to face the same thing I faced over the years is everybody gets going home and then two weeks later, nothing's happened. And that's now you're not doing this to speak or write books. You're doing this to change America. Right. I feel like this is the next partnership for you and me is to sit down and figure out how we help seed the Civicon model in other places uh, so that, you know, these, these change makers, these people who are really excited about making things, uh, making things different in their place can create the infrastructure around them to have that happen. And I, I know you and I have chatted about it, but I'm, I'm excited for following up on that at some point. Yeah, I think it's a key. I, I think um, you have to teach them how to manage it, how to handle the change, how to push back on the turbulence. Because if you, you don't keep the throttle down, you, you back off because not everybody wants the change. And I think sometimes I, I just did a thing for the Florida Planning Association and I took phases of change and why, and why most initiatives fail for government. And then I threw in, but they don't have to fail. So everybody's excited. You have these few change people. But then if you don't have the burning platform, you don't build a coalition, you run out of gas. So I'd love to, Chuck, because that's what I believe a lot of my talks now are really geared more on how to help the community grab that guiding coalition and take some, some next steps. So we were in um, Statesboro, Georgia. And they've got a project that they're going to take four years to finish. It's a blue mile. It's blah, blah, blah. And they're opening up a little creek sort of close to Main Street. And we said, why are you waiting four years to do something there? Start having events right now. Talking about This is Festival Creek. And start showing what this is going to be. Um, they had a wonderful path from the Georgia Southern to downtown that no one was using. I said, it's 20 minutes. Have a sign that says 20 minutes and then put things along the way because we know people only walk five minutes. So I think it's engaging them in action because the other thing that change management shows, the best way to keep it going is to have small steps of success. And Chuck, that's why I think you're so valuable. You preach. Do a, I call it, you know, you're a baseball guy. Small ball. We need to play small ball. And, and I think most of these cities fail because they're trying to do too much. And they can't do it. Right. So you got to get these these incremental wins along the way. It doesn't do you very much good to hit solo home runs if you don't have if you don't have guys on base and are moving things around. Yeah, I totally. I, we're on the same page. I want uh, people who have read the subtitle of my book is a bottom up revolution to rebuild prosperity. Need to go and read. And even if you haven't read my book, you need to go and read Quint's. I'm going to read the subtitle again, How to Lead People in Places That Thrive. I know you said this, and I'm going to repeat it. Uh, if my book is the, is the why, uh, your book is the how. I've you know gone through it now, and I think that that's very true. You can't flip open to a page without getting an insight on how to do things and, and how to do it better. I learned a ton just going through it, and I would recommend anybody who's trying to figure out how to go out and build a strong town uh, to pick up this book. So, Quint... You're always generous with me and generous with your time. I just want to thank you for uh, not only for putting the book together, but for agreeing to sit down and chat with me. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you. And last statement is capital follows talent and talent follows place. And that's exactly what you do. So thank you very much. Well, let's keep in touch. And I, I know we'll chat again very soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, friend. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.